then turning to the New Testament. Take a look at whoops, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, beginning with verse uh, 41. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been having a big discussion, and this is coming at the end of that. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, who do you think, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that I've, that David speaking in the spirit calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. From that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Good? Good. Thank you, Hazel, for reading the word of the Lord this morning. And uh, both these passages contain a bit of a mystery in them. Uh, and she shared a little bit about one of those mysteries. And uh, we'll, I'm going to talk at greater length about that one. But the second one I'll chat with just really quickly, and that's the one found in Matthew that she just read. Who is this one that David, King David, calls Lord? Who is one of his descendants? That's the mystery, right? It's like you don't usually call your son or your grandson or your, one of your descendants isn't usually greater than you. you. You usually say, well, that's my kid or my grandkid, but, you don't, but to call one of them Lord, who is this one? And uh, Jesus is, is quoting Scripture to these Pharisees. He's quoting Psalm 110, and um, he's, he's asking them, do you know who King David who is the one that, he, that comes after King David, who King David himself calls Lord? Who is this mysterious one that the Lord anoints as a king? And the Pharisees don't know who it is. They don't actually know the puzzle, the answer to the puzzle of Psalm 110. And Jesus does know the answer, and we'll talk a little bit more about it as we go on uh, uh, through that. But I want to jump more into the Samuel passage. If you're just joining us, you see these posters on the wall. This is sort of the journey we've been on as a church since September, is we've been going systematically through the Bible from the very beginning, the book of Genesis, to the very end, the book of Revelation. And right now we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and in 1 Samuel, uh, there we're, we're learning about, um, right now, we're, we're learning about, well, First Samuel, you got to say, well, there's got to be a guy named Samuel in this story, right? Is there? Yes, the, the uh, First Samuel, it starts with Samuel, right? It starts with this guy. Um, but this is a story today I'm going to tell you. It's sort of a bit of a sad story. It's a story of rejection. It's a story of rejection. Have you ever been rejected? I mean, probably all of us at some point have been rejected. Uh, did you go to tryouts, but you didn't make the team? It's... Feels like rejection, doesn't it? Or maybe you wanted a part in the musical, but you didn't get the part you wanted. You tried out, you really wanted that part, but you didn't get what you wanted. Uh, maybe you asked someone to go out with you, and they turned you down. That's what my wife did to me. 
but she, she saw the light at the end. <laughs> Did you submit your resume or your application, but you still didn't get the job? Someone else get the promotion you deserved? It gets more and more serious, doesn't it? Rejection can be a really painful thing. I think there's, there's no pain. It's very unique. There's no pain like the pain of rejection. And it hurts to be rejected, especially when you've done so much, especially if it's a scenario where you've done so much for the one that actually rejects you. That's super painful. And that's super painful. If you've experienced rejection like that, you've done so much for someone, and then they reject you, God can relate to you. And maybe you'll even say that today you can relate a little bit to the story we tell about God. And the day we're talking about, especially today, is, is the day that the people of Israel rejected God as their king. This is the same Israel that God had chosen as his special people. What had God done for him? He chose them as my special people. You will be my special possession of all the nations of the earth. You will be my special chosen people. And, and they're chosen for a very important task, to show the world who God is, right? Even if you just, if you know your geography a little bit, where is Israel? It's dead in the center of everything that was happening in the ancient world. Like, even its geography speaks to God's purpose. This nation was handpicked to influence and to show who God was and for them to demonstrate who God was and that 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 influence and that message about God to radiate out from their geographical location that God had handpicked for them. He'd chosen that location for them. Very significant. So they were God's chosen people, given a special role in the world, a special uh, a location in the world. He had, he had delivered them. To do that, he had to deliver them from Egyptian captivity where they were slaves and lead them through the wilderness, and he'd done that, and he'd given them this promised land. And after all God had done for them, all that he'd given them, they wanted to trade him in for a new king. So this, this week's story is a really sad one. It's called Standing Tall and Falling Hard. But it's a, it's a sad story today. This is, today's a tragedy. Some of the stories are really more triumphant. This one, uh, it starts with tragedy. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where I'm going to spend most of my time this morning. I'll, I'll jump around to some other verses. But if you want to follow along in your Bible, 1 Samuel 8 is the main place where I'm going to read. And let me begin there. It says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second uh, was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Sounds like bad leadership, doesn't it? Uh, Going after dishonest gain, accepting bribes, and perverting justice. You know, Israel, uh, at the beginning of of the book of Samuel, actually, I'll give you a, a little bit. If, you're parent, if you've been enjoying the story because your kids are learning the exact same thing you're learning, let me just give you a hint. They're going to be mostly focused on the beginning of the story of Samuel this morning, learning about how that even kids can hear the voice of the Lord. They can learn to listen for God speaking to them. And God does speak to kids. That's an amazing thing. They're learning that with Pastor Laura right now. And we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but that's where Samuel's story starts. And you know what? The first message... 
God gave to Samuel was? It was a message of a rebuke for sin. He was just a child. Now, he was living in the, in the, uh, with Eli in the house of the Lord, right? His mom, remember, she had, had cried out to God, poured out her soul to God, give me a child. She was barren, and then she had a child, and she gave him back to the Lord. And then after that, she had five more kids. Uh, God just blessed her, really cool. But Samuel was to be given over to be uh, just dedicated to the Lord. And so he's living as a child with Eli, the old priest. Now, Eli has his own kids. He has Hophni and Phinehas. And they, they, they totally do not follow the Lord. They continue to be priests, but they're corrupt. And so the first message, when, when, it, when, when God speaks first to Samuel and says, uh, you know, Samuel, Samuel, calls his name, he gives him a message. He says, I want you to tell Eli that he's failing in his role. It's not that Eli hasn't provided some good leadership. It's that he didn't restrain his kids. And his kids are not good leaders. They're terrible leaders. So this is a really, when you, we're starting with this part, when I just read that not only did, he, the very first word that Samuel was given to deliver, as, and he would lead well. Samuel was a good leader. But Samuel perpetrated the exact same problem that his mentor Eli had is that he didn't discipline his kids like he should have and so it didn't the godly leadership of Eli didn't turn into godly leadership in his kid and the godly leadership of Samuel didn't turn into godly leadership in his kids and that's become a huge problem for Israel so when Samuel grew old he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders but they were terrible leaders. They went after dishonest gain, they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. So Samuel's getting old, and he has no worthy successor on the horizon. He's like the last of the good leaders. And this, is, uh, this, is, this has some long-term implications. And, and Israel makes a tragic decision at this moment. A really tragic decision. And the implications of these decisions don't go away in a week. Sometimes you make a bad decision and it lasts for a week. Sometimes you make a bad decision and it lasts for a month. This decision will not just last for months or years. This decision is a bad decision that will last for 1,000 years. That's a millennium, right? A bad decision made. We're going to learn about a bad decision that lasts 1,000 years. And, and it's going to cause pain for a thousand years. See, bad things happen when people reject God as king. This is an ancient story, but it's relevant and, and it's a practical warning for us today. You and I are tempted every day to do the same thing. Maybe not on a grand national scale, but on a personal scale. Every day we're tempted to reject God's kingly leadership in our lives. We're tempted to say no to God as a as supreme ruler and as the boss of our lives. We're tempted to say, no, I don't want you to be king. I'd rather be king. Or I want someone else to be king. Or I think this is more worthy of worship than you. Or this has captured my imagination, not you. We're tempted to replace God with something else. Most likely a human substitute, whether it's ourselves or someone else. Let me read a little farther. It says, the elders of Israel, they're seeing the scenario. Samuel's a good leader, but we can't trust his kids. 
They are bad news. And so the elders of all Israel gathered together, and they come to Samuel at, at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now, what's the motivation behind Israel's rejection of God? And it might be our motivation too sometimes. What's the motivation? What's the cause of rejecting God as king? I want to just point out two of them really quickly. One, there's a vacuum of leadership. And and I want to be specific about this. Specifically, a vacuum of godly leadership. There's nobody there to pass the baton to. There's nobody there that they can look to and say, this is a godly leader. And you know what? The failure to pass on leadership to godly leaders in the next generation is a massive failure. So many good things just come to a screeching halt or just fall off the cliff because the baton pass doesn't happen. Because there isn't somebody else worthy to receive. Or or maybe sometimes leaders just don't train up those, those leaders to come after them. And Samuel had no worthy successor. His sons didn't walk in his ways. He was old, and there was nobody there. And um, this is where, where it was. There was a vacuum of godly leadership. And so there's a real importance in our lives to make sure that in every generation there's godly leadership. Now, sometimes you think, well, you only lead till you get old enough to lead. But that's not true. That's not true. The Bible paints a different picture of leadership. In fact, lots of leaders came into leadership rather young. And sometimes they had to be encouraged, right? Remember Paul writing to Timothy, said, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, right? Now, you don't normally just pick the youngest person in the room to be the leader. That's sort of because you want people with more experience. But sometimes you just, you, you do, right? Sometimes that happens. So don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, said Paul, but be an example to the believers in, in life and in faith and speech and doctrine and all these different things. Be an example in all those things. I, I've been sort of, I don't know if you've noticed this this week, but it sort of was a, a meme that sort of exploded on the internet this week. Okay, boomer. Anyone notice that this week or see that immediately? Yeah, a couple of you did. Okay, boomer. What is it? It's a sarcastic response from a younger generation to an older generation. Where did it come from? Well, I think this is my own theory, is that an older generation has been saying about a younger generation, and I'm not saying it's boomers, but I'm just saying it's generally, that sometimes older ones look at younger ones dismissively. Oh, man, when are they going to get their stuff together? I roll. You know, we can't, I can't believe, you know, how, you know, this generation, old millennials, whatever. So there's that sort of dynamic at work, and now this reverse dynamic is coming back, sort of dismissive of an older generation. Now, If that's happening in the culture, what should the church do? Well, we should obey what the Bible tells us to do in this very area, right? So first, let's go to the oldest ones because, you know, you're old enough to know better, right? So that's what you do in a family, right? You tell the oldest kid, even though the youngest kid broke the vase, the oldest kid is responsible because they should have known better, right? If you're a firstborn, you know exactly how this works, right? You got blamed for everything. Anyhow, so if you go to the oldest generation, you should say, hey... There's instructions for what it means to be a spiritual father or be a spiritual mother in the generations, right? I especially love that verse that says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't exasperate them. Don't drive them to the end where they're so frustrated with your leadership. Now, I can't say that as a dad I'm perfect in that area. I probably have exasperated my kids. But in the generations, that means, hey, 
Instead of saying, boy, when will you guys get it together? Oh, you millennials, you... Stop it. Stop it. Instead, bless that generation. Bless that generation. Start scouting among that generation. See who's, who's, who's got a sense of leadership within them or got, God's call on them and begin to speak it out because... They don't have a blueprint for how that all works, but you have enough life experience that you can spot it. And so you should be on a scouting mission all the time to go and say, I see in you something incredible, and I want to just speak it into your life. I see in you this potential. I see in you this good quality. I see in you. You want that stuff to, to multiply in the generations? Well, start speaking it out. Start calling it out. Start blessing it. So that's where I would start. And then if you're in the younger generation and you're, you want to be dismissive of an older generation, well, then we've got other verses, right? Children, honor your fathers and mothers, right? So that's true in families, but it's also true in generations. You never want to be dismissive of the people who went ahead of you and, and paved the way, right? Oh, they didn't do everything perfect, for sure. That's never going to happen. But you want to be respectful of the ones who've already gone ahead. And, and uh, we live in blessing in our church for sure. We live in massive blessing for the generations who've gone ahead of us and paved the way for us. I've had the delight in the last uh, number of years as the lead pastor um, to thank some of those leaders. Some of them, I, I, those thank yous happened when they were very close to their last days. In fact, I remember one scenario where it was their last day and I was holding their hand in... Um, in a, in a senior's home where they were, you know, with their family and just thanking them. Thank you for building well. Thank you for believing with great faith for the future. Thank you for investing for people that you will never meet. So the baton pass between generations got to happen, right? We need great leaders. We had great leaders in the builder generation, and we still do have many Builder generation, that's older than boomers, right? And then we have tons of great leaders in the boomer generation, and we're still working them super hard, and we're telling them they can't retire because us Gen Xers don't want the big load they're carrying, right? So it's just like, keep going, boomers, and, and bless you, right? And then Gen Xers, that's my generation. We're the little tiny generation sandwiched between the massive boomers and the massive millennials. We're just these little guys. We're like, don't give us all your work. The millennials will share it. Anyhow, so we're... But, Bless the Gen Xers. Bless them, right? They're small, but there's a few of them and they're nice. Okay? And then bless the millennials, right? That's the biggest generation yet to come, right? Bless the millennials and Gen Z, right? Bless them, right? Right now it's boomers and millennials talking, and, and I, as a Gen Xer, get to be a referee. But uh, someday the Gen Zs will say nasty things about me, and I hope millennials will stick up for me. All right. Just <laughs> I rebuke that. All right. <laughs> okay, love you guys. This is great. We need not, we don't want a vacuum of leadership at any generation. In fact, we can't afford it. We can't afford it. Because what happens, and this is a double whammy. It's not, for this case in Israel, it wasn't just a vacuum in leadership. It was the pull of the culture as well. Israel's looking around at how do other nations do things? Oh, they have, a, they have a king, and that king leads them into battle, and he gives them confidence, and they look to him. Wow, that seems like a better model. It wasn't a better model. 
But that's what everyone was doing. Sometimes what everyone is doing is just like dumb. They're doing dumb stuff, but because everyone's doing it, it sort of seems smart. But it's not. And so the pull of the culture, even when the, sometimes the culture is doing good things, bless that, encourage that, say it's good, right? Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes in the culture, people are doing very bad things. You've got to have a backbone strong enough to resist that, right? I, can't remember, I think it's Malcolm Muggeridge. I think I might quote him again today, but I think he says that the only fish that float with the stream are the dead ones. If you're going to be a leader, you've got to be a live fish. You've got to flap your whatever that tail thing is. And you've got to, what's it, what is it? It's a tail. I don't know what it is called. Fin, thank you. You've got to flap that thing and you've got to move against the current sometimes. So we want, we want to make sure we don't have a vacuum of leadership. And we need to have strong enough leaders that can resist the pull of the culture when it's toxic, when it's deadly, when it's wrong. Right? So we need godly leadership. We need godly leadership. You think about what Israel was called to do. They were called to bless the whole world. Tiny nation, mighty calling. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Listen to this. It says, this is Abraham. When, it, when Israel was not a nation, when it was just one guy meeting God. Uh, I, Abraham, the idol worshiper, is encountering the living God. The real deal. And this is what he says to him. He says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. He's relocating him to the location that will be influential, right? To the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Wow, they're going to be seriously influential. And this is the last line. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So Israel was meant to be the influencer, not the influence e. That's the same for any follower of Jesus. We're supposed to change the atmosphere in the room because we bring the presence of Jesus with us. Not to go in the room and just sort of bow and kowtow to whatever the dominant cultural demand is. We're supposed to be atmosphere changers, not be changed by the atmosphere. And that was Israel's call. Now, ultimately, this talk about making them into a blessing for the whole world is referencing Jesus. You can't get away from that. It wasn't just that the Jewish people were going to be all that. It was that through them was going to come Jesus. And that was going to bring blessing to the entire world. But they were supposed to draw people to God by their influence. But here they are becoming like the world instead of influencing the world to become like them. So the vacuum of leadership and the pull of the culture and bad things happen when these two things align. So what's the answer? Again, I've said it. I'll say it again. We must constantly be developing godly leaders in every generation. We need them in government. We need them in business. We need them in the church. We need them to lead us towards God and godly principles. 
We always need to be on the lookout for people who walk their talk, who practice what they preach, who have a heart of integrity and honesty. Leaders who love God with all their heart. They're being transformed in that love relationship with God so that they also uh, learn how to love their neighbors well too. So we need to look for those leaders and we need to personally aspire to be transformed in that way as well. You all have a level of leadership at some level. You all, leadership is influence. I think that's a John Maxwell quote. But basically, you all have a level of influence, whether it's over a few in your sphere of influence or whether it's over hundreds or more. God is calling you to use that, to grow in that in a godly way, right? Not just, not just leadership, but godly leadership because that's the distinction that, that makes the difference. Then we'll be able to resist the pull of the culture. Now, I've talked about the cause of rejecting God. Let me talk about the cruelty of rejecting God. 1 Samuel 8, 6-8 says, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And they have done from the day... and all." Sorry, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Samuel is just sort of, he's in this experience and he's like, he's wincing because of this rejection. He's feeling it. And God's just pointing out to him, they're not even rejecting you. It feels painful though, doesn't it? Like even, the, even for you to get a whiff of this rejection, for Samuel, it was not pleasant. But this was a direct rejection of God. Samuel's just the messenger, right? But even being the messenger was so unpleasant. It's not you they have rejected. They've rejected me. This is like the dark thread that runs through the whole Bible. This is the thing that runs through the whole Bible. When we talk about sin, our sins are nailed to the cross. I love that song, especially after a set-free weekend. We just had an incredible set-free weekend. Uh, so many um, great people coming together and just uh, applying the truth of the cross to their lives. Confessing sin. Walking in the forgiveness of God. I mean, this morning, this, uh, someone told me they had a little bit more lightness in their step, a little more spring in their step, because they just had a... They just had a thorough spiritual cleaning in their life. And then we prayed at the end that everything that had been cleaned out, whatever had been cleaned out in their lives, like Jesus taught this in Matthew, would, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's what we just did this weekend. So when, this morning when we were singing about the enemy's accusations, how they fall flat now because our sins are nailed to the cross, I'm like, yes, yes. And then that new song will behold Jesus. Yes, because at the end of doing all that stuff, we just look at Jesus. We don't look at ourselves anymore. Self-forgetfulness, but God-mindfulness and just be fixed on him. He's the author, perfect of our faith. Look at him. But I love the worship set. I just thought it was amazing. It was just like set free all over again. I think I got set free twice this weekend. It was awesome. <laughs> but the thread, the dark thread, I mean, there's good threads that run through the Bible. There's great thread of God's redemption. But the dark thread that runs through it is the people who God has come to lead and guide reject him. Isaiah said, we're like sheep that have gone astray. 
Every one of us has turned to our own way. And because of that, God had to lay on Jesus a heavy load, the load of our sin. You know, the earthly kingdom was of that, you know, so the next 10 weeks, let me just tell you this, the next 10 weeks, we're going to, the implications of today are going to weigh out for 10 weeks. Because the earthly kingdom of Israel goes on for another thousand years. Israel looking to a man to lead them. And uh, I won't tell you the whole story, but it doesn't go very well. And this was never God's idea. God never had it in his heart in the beginning to say, you know what, and when I get them to Israel, I'm going to give them a king. No, his plan was, I'm going to lead them. They're going to be my special possession, and I'm going to be their king. I'm going to be the one who leads them. But this rejection uh, changed the whole scenario. This was not God's plan, but God, this was God's concession. This was go- God allowed it. It was a bad idea. It would come back to bite them, but God allowed it. And this is really uh, important to note, that when we tell God, I don't want your will for my life, the one of the most, you think it's nice, but it's one of the most horrible responses we can receive from God is for God to say, okay, you can have your will for your life. It sounds nice. It's terrible. It's terrible. We're not the best leaders of our lives. You know, like the old poem, I'm the captain of my soul. We're not the best captains of our soul. We weren't meant to live that way. And we shipwreck our lives that way. So this was God's concession. He allowed this. He said, okay, you don't want my will. You reject me as king. You want a human king. Your will be done. Terrible. It says in the book of Romans chapter 1, because people didn't honor God, because they didn't have gratitude towards God, they didn't glorify God, that God allowed them to go down that road, which meant a darkened mind, a darkened heart, and God gave them over to what they wanted. But the results were terrible, absolutely terrible. So sometimes when we defy God, God just says, okay, you can have it your way. But we, that's not what is best for us. One of the things that we learn in this story, and I want to just talk, I'm talking about the cruelty of rejecting God, is that God has a heart. God has a heart. God himself has a heart. God has a heart, and it can be broken. Like, that might be a radical concept to you. And, and for me, I, I've been thinking quite a bit about it. Like, God has a heart, and it can be broken. And you see this in different parts of the Bible. In Genesis 6, we already talked about this in this series. Uh, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. This is just before the flood, right? And every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so the Lord regretted. So we're hearing about God's emotions. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. God has a heart, and it can be broken. It can be filled with pain. It can be deeply troubled. Now, if you're a parent, you go, oh, I think I get it, right? If you're a parent, you go, here's my kid. I love them. I want good for them. I want a great future for them. And it breaks my heart when I see them make bad choices. You get it, don't you? Anyone? Parents? And you say, I get it. I get it. I can relate to God on this one. 
ouch, it's anguish in here when I see my children make destructive choices, make unwise choices, make unhealthy choices. It's hard. And God is saying this about the Israelites and also the people before the flood, that his heart was deeply troubled. So God feels pain when we rebel against him. Think of Jesus. Jesus, you can hear the pain in his voice when, in Matthew 23, 27. This is, he's come to Israel, and, and there's been a lot of rejection there as well. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is what he's saying. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, rejection of God, right? And stone those sent to you, rejection of God. How often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Rejection of Jesus. You can hear the emotion in what he's saying. So imagine the pain God feels when he is rejected as king. We don't serve an emotionless God. Now, he's not like dictated to by his emotions. It's not like he's flying off the handle with his emotions or just so emotional. But he does have emotion. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a, a cruelty in rejecting God. Now the third thing I want to talk about is the cost of rejecting God. And Samuel just jumps right into this with the people. He explains the cost that they will pay. And he's going to tell them on the front end what will happen on the back end because of this decision. God says, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the ki- that what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Okay, so what's it like to have a human king like everybody else? What's it like when we become like the other nations that have a human king? This is, oh, goody, goody, gumdrops. This is going to be great, right? And then Samuel tells them. He told them all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king. So they're all anticipation. Tell us about our future as, a, as people with a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground or reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now you think with that kind of warning, the people would say, have mercy on us, forgive us, we've asked for an evil thing. This is what they say. The people refused, again, rejection, refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, and this is not good news, listen to them and give them a king. 
This is a sad moment in Israel's history. It's a tragedy, and the next 10 or 11 chapters in your book, the story, are going to deal with this tragedy. People have an amazing way of selecting bad leaders. Did you know that? <laughs> if I say that in Saskatchewan, I know I'm going to get a response, right? Anyhow, I won't say any more. I won't say any more. People have an amazing way of selecting bad leaders. Why is that? Why is that? Because we have a tendency to choose by the outward appearance. That's, we tend to choose by the outward appearance. We want leaders to look good and sound good. They don't need to be able to write a speech or even believe what they say. They just need to deliver the speech and read the teleprompter, right? And looking good while you do it, that's also a bonus, right? So uh, President Roosevelt, Roosevelt, right, he was in a wheelchair. But they dared not publish pictures of that to the American people because we don't follow leaders in wheelchairs. Well, that's what, I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying that's a bad thing. That's how, that's how it's perceived. We want a leader. He was a good leader, but he had image problems. You couldn't publish a picture and show that he was stuck in a wheelchair or people wouldn't have confidence in him, right? Laura Sakharak and I were talking about this this week. We were saying, what if you or I were in a wheelchair? What if you went to a church and said, I'd like to be your children's pastor? I have a bazillion uh, hours of experience, which she does. She's like the world's best children's pastor. But if she's in a wheelchair, they'd say, no, we're going to hire this other dude. He has no experience, but he can walk. And they'd be the losers for it. They would be. We are so drawn to image. And that's one of the reasons why we keep selecting bad leaders. And this is in the Bible. It's no surprise. 1 Samuel 9, 2 says it this way. It says, Kish, that's this man, had a son named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. So Mr. Tall, sort of dark, Jewish are a little more darker skinned, and handsome. And he was a disaster as a leader. An absolute disaster as a leader. What's the cure? This is all bad news. What's the cure? What's the cure for rejecting God as a king? Well, the mystery of the beginning, you know, the mystery that Hazel read about, you know, who is this son of David who's greater than David, so David calls him Lord. Well, it shows up in the New Testament again and again, right? Jesus is throwing this out as a riddle to the Pharisees, but Jesus' followers catch on who he is. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he just begins to preach. He says, David, he, he died and he's in his tomb still. But this Jesus, he died and he rose to life. And God, remember it said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at your right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet. That's what Psalm 110 says. That's an image of being anointed as a king because a king has dominion over his enemies, his authority. And so on the day of Pentecost, that was part of Peter's sermon to say, this Jesus, God has made him a ruler and priest. And he says that several things about his, you know, authority and who he is. Again, he's referencing Psalm 110. And Jesus himself, when he came, and this is the, the key, when he came, he said this. He said, repent 
and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, actually, is the full statement. What was the good news? The good news was after a thousand years of stupidity, after a thousand years of doing the wrong thing, of rejecting God as king, now Jesus has arrived on the scene to declare that the kingdom of God is here in the person of Jesus. And that instead of doing what they've already done, rejected God and, and embraced human kings, which failed and failed and failed and failed, now is the time to go the opposite direction and stop looking to a man to save you and look to God. Now, it's a very different kingdom. He said, my kingdom's not of this world. So when people thought he was going to rise up and, and, and run the Romans out of town, that wasn't the deal. The deal was... He was looking to rule and reign in human hearts. This wasn't going to be a political kingdom. It was going to be a spiritual kingdom. And you know what? It's an amazing thing. There's been kings rise and fall throughout the generations. And, and they have, themselves have marveled that even though, I remember reading about Napoleon. He would talk about all the great kings like Charlemagne and emperors like Charlemagne and Napoleon. And his quote at the end is said, all those guys ruled by force but it can't hold a candle to Jesus who holds the allegiance of human hearts. Because people fall in love with Jesus. They worship Jesus. They have an unrivaled loyalty to Jesus that transcends loyalty to na nations or, or governments. And that's what Jesus was proclaiming. Every time he did a parable, he'd say, the kingdom of heaven is like... A merchant finding a pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer going out to sow a seed. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, a mustard seed. Or the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. He did all these different... But almost every parable he began, he was announcing something. He was saying, that thousand-year experiment of rejecting God as king, it can be over for you personally. It can be over for you today. I'm announcing the new kingdom. I'm announcing a chance here. You made a decision that had thousands of years of terrible implications. The opportunity is at hand now to receive God as your king again through Jesus. When you took, I mean, when we're doing the story. We're doing the big story of the Bible. We're not just looking at little individual stories. We're talking about the big story of the Bible. And that dark thread of rejecting God as king is matched by a light thread of people all the way through the Bible who suddenly the lights went on. And they didn't go on because they were super spiritual or they were super good. In fact, most of them were more messed up than you can imagine. If you feel like your family's messed up, your life is messed up, read the Bible. You'll be so encouraged. They are way more messed up than you can imagine. And God used those people, and God called those people, and God had a place for those people in his kingdom. So the question that remains, really, is just a simple question. Today, will you reject God as king, or will you embrace God as king? It's... When you look at the big arc, the big story of the Bible, that's what it just leads us to. Will you embrace? The cure for rejecting God as king is repentance. After a thousand years of stupidity, you can say, now I'm going to do something wise. 
I'm going to embrace the one who can lead my life, who can guide my life, who rightfully uh, deserves my allegiance and my loyalty. I'm going to get you to stand here this morning with me. Man, I just would hate to no, to, for you to go away this morning and not have a chance to just make that decision. If, that's, if you're saying, man, I can relate to all humanity. I can relate to it. I can relate to uh, pushing back against God and, and resisting his will for my life. And, but maybe in this moment, even in this moment, God's given you a moment of a window of grace where you could just say, I think I'm ready to say yes to God instead of no, which is radically different. I think I'm ready to accept God's leadership in my life as opposed to rejecting it. And if you're at that moment now, and I'd hate for you to leave and not take advantage of that moment and just be able to express that to God in simple terms. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer this morning, and it's just a prayer you could pray every day, but for some of you it might be the prayer that signifies your heart has changed towards God. And instead of rejection, you're ready to accept what he's done for you. So let me just lead you. I'll, I'll, I'll say it and you can repeat it after me. But again, it's what you mean in your heart, what you're, what you're expressing to God through this that really uh, counts with him. So dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I just thank you. you. I thank you that you bring us to a point of repentance, turning away from uh, futile living, empty, an empty way of life, a life where it's all about ourselves as the leader or, or, or looking to other humans that we think will never fail us, but boy, that just never really works, does it? So thank you that you call us to this point, to where we belong, following you, in relationship with you, walking with the one who will never leave us nor forsake us, and the one who has the keys of eternal life. Lord, we thank you for that uh, as your sons and your daughters, you make us uh, inheritors of eternal life with you. That that's our inheritance. That's the thing that, that we, we receive as, as we walk with you. And Lord, you have so much better things in store for us than we could cook up on our own. And so we want you to lead. We want you to lead. And we don't want to be resistant in any way to that leadership. We want to say, aye, aye. I'm following you. I'm going wherever you lead. And uh, Lord, let, let us just uh, embrace you fully in every way. Exalt you as king and receive you as king in our lives and in our hearts. Yeah.